Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boloris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Vice Presidents and Principal Analysts Sucharita Kadali and Tama Hussain to discuss green consumer segmentation strategies. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's start with the value of segmenting your customer base in this way. Why why do this work to begin with? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, first, because there is still little knowledge among uh, market insights teams and marketing teams about the behaviors, the attitudes, the emotions of consumers when it comes to environmental sustainability. Their behaviors are evolving very quickly, and there are lots of counterintuitive facts as well. When you dig into the data, it's a lot more complex, and it requires a lot more nuance uh, than one may expect. And it's very important to understand these behaviors and attitudes, especially when it comes to their propensity to buy sustainable products and pay a green premium and also to understand their relationship and how they engage with brands when it comes to the level of trust that consumers have for uh, firms taking actions on environmental issues. Now, there are other reasons, I'm sure, Susharita, you want to chime in, but that's the first obvious one, I think. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the timing is also super important to remember as well. We're in the midst of, um, you know, just a global climate crisis, and um, every company is asking. Um, certainly, we hear um, from our clients the 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 importance of uh, how important are their environmental sustainability and government efforts, also known as ESG. How important um, are those claims to the consumers that they're trying to to actually attract? Um, so, so the timing right now is also really important um, for why we're doing this. And I expect that this is going to continue to change. It's a it's a living, breathing segmentation. Um, it's not just a one and done project because this is probably going to change and evolve um, every year. It's interesting. I mean, there's, um, you mentioned like clients and it seems like there's one group of clients, at least like in my experience, I'd be interested in what you guys think were they're committed to environmental sustainability. They're committed to reducing their carbon footprint. And to some extent, they want to know how quickly they can create new products, new engagement models for their consumers to sort of bring them along to the to the ride. And then I feel like there's others who are almost coming at it reluctantly, which is they would look at this data and they want to know, okay, when is it time for us to have to get into this as well? So it seems like there's two camps, like those are more proactive and then those are kind of coming along reluctantly. Yeah. And I think that um, what is interesting about the data is that I think it addresses both types of companies. So those that are um, hyper forward thinking and, and very progressive on these issues, this, I think, in many ways, the segmentation gives them um, justification and ammunition um, that helps them continue to make their business cases. Um, many of them are, you know, are often on the the bleeding edge of of these types of developments. So they often end up being our case studies for um, for how others should think about these initiatives as well. Um, but 
in particular for that latter group stuff that you're referring to, which are, you know, kind of those that, that you know, maybe more reluctant, you, you have to drag them kicking and screaming, um, you, you know, into this journey. Um, the, this, this is also, this is that data on, on for different segments of consumers, different types of companies, how many of your shoppers actually are interested and it's more than just shoppers it's you know it's your consumers because this is not just this is not a retail study it's you know it's 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 agnostic to to industry um but it's how what percent of your consumers um you know kind of are interested and would make those choices if you as a brand made it easier um and 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 that's why i say like the time series notion of this is going to be important i mean we certainly see in virtually every category of commerce there are new entrants making claims about esg and those companies there was just a recent mckinsey study as well that set with iri in the consumer products um, sector that basically showed that those companies making esg claims are gaining share so i, I think even for those companies that may be reluctant um the clock is ticking and uh, this is the data that helps them um, recognize, hopefully, that uh, that the the time is now. And I know we're going to get into a description of the each of the the four segments, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how we actually arrived at the four the four segments. Yeah. So basically, we we've considered the three attributes to determine these segments. Uh, the the first one is really to look at the extent to which consumers are looking and seeking out information to make green choices. Um, the second element is to look at um, the the importance of the different factors, uh, especially price versus convenience uh, and and other elements that make their shopping decisions. And the, the third one is really to rank environment around these different elements. So that's what we came up with four very distinct groups. Uh, and we've considered obviously the, the willingness to pay across these different categories of uh, these different segments. Uh, but at the end of the day, four very distinct segments uh, that obviously vary quite a lot depending on geographies, depending on demographics. So. Yeah, maybe let's let's go a, a bit deeper into these four segments, who they are, and the, the key differences that we came across. Yeah, let's do that. So, should we start at the bottom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the lightest shade of green is that where we're going? The non green, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> the non greens. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, of uh, you know internal debates about what the the nomenclature and the naming of these would be. I think we had some some funny ones that were you know that. Uh, that were dismissed. Um, but yes, the, you know, kind of the least green, we call the non-green segment. And these are, these are the consumers that are the most price focused. Um, they are not going to be making any type of trade-off for the environment. And uh, they're also, you know, kind of, they, they are a little bit older. Um, they are, they tend to not um, be families. So they may be, um, you, you know, kind of living in smaller households. So that's definitely um, that that bottom segment. Um, then the next one up, um, the a little bit more green, or what we call the dormant greens, and this is a segment that is not 
actively looking for environmental information, but they're persuadable. And um, so for companies that do make ESG claims, so long as those items are in price parity with other products, um, you, you know, it's likely that the consumer will pick that product. Um, they tend to be lower educated. Um, they also tend to be non-parents, but uh, this is this is a segment that is more persuadable as opposed to the non-greens, where you know they don't even they don't even care about the environment. Um, Toma, do you want to describe the other two segments? Sure. The the next segment up are convenient greens. So they consider themselves as environmentally they're environmentally conscious. Uh, but they, they value convenience over the environment. So in this segment, you're more likely to find parents, uh, people who do not have a lot of necessarily of time, hence their preference for convenience. They do care about the environment, uh, but uh, they still, uh, they, lower prices still take precedence over, you know, uh, being eco-friendly. And then on the top, you've got the active greens, uh, they consider themselves as environmentally conscious. They choose eco-friendly items over low-cost or convenient items. And they pay a lot of attention uh, on how companies impact the environment. They're more likely to scrutinize information uh, on products. Um, so these different segments, just to give you some orders of magnitudes, because they vary quite a bit across the different regions. but. Um, in, in, in the U.S., non-greens represent about one in four consumers, 23%. Um, in other parts of the world, especially in Europe, there are fewer non-greens, uh, especially in France and in Italy. We're talking of 10 and 7% only of non-greens in these two countries. Uh, in most countries, we've looked at the dormant greens, the ones that you can still wake up and activate. Uh, they represent the majority of consumers, about 40% in, in most countries. Then the convenient greens, they represent uh, 22% of the, the online population in, in the U.S., and then the active greens, uh, we're talking roughly of uh, 24% of the population in Europe, um, even up to 32% in Italy. And in the US, we're talking about 17%. So you see there are lots of differences uh, at a regional level. Even though this is evolving quickly, uh, I think it's very important to, to go into the details here because there are lots of nuances to be taken into account. But just to give you some orders of magnitudes. Yeah, I mean, the data is like fascinating. I guess like if I'm, again, not just like retail, but if I am a retailer, to some extent, you're like, oh, the biggest group, it's dormant greens. Like I should spend some time like focusing on them. They're persuadable. But if I have like good products that are price parity, and then they, they come to really value them, like I've converted that group. Or I could also see a retailer saying to themselves, um, you know, convenient greens and the, the true green consumers, the eco greens, like if they're more highly educated and have higher disposable income, yeah, they're a little bit smaller group today, but maybe I, that's where I target um, because they do have more disposable income for it. Um, I can see multiple strategies like kind of coming out of this. And maybe for a company with multiple product segments, there are multiple strategies based on the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think that there's, um, you know, especially if you have multiple 
brands within your portfolio or different offerings, um, you know, kind of a universal strategy may be difficult. It may be too risky. Um, so absolutely. I mean, there are likely, you know, kind of we have in the retail industry, which which I cover closely, we have things called we call it a good, better, best strategy, which are you typically based on your price and your value offering. Um, in the future, I can see that applying to, you know, kind of environment and sustainability, too. Um, and things are also going to vary tremendously geographically as well. Right. So as Tomah mentioned, um, you know, some of those data points between the United States and um, Europe are very different, especially when you're talking about the top and the bottom of the distributions. When you're looking at, like, say, um, active greens minus non-greens, it is net positive in Europe. It is net negative in the United States. So, um, it, you know, so it it makes more sense to, you know, absolutely be focusing more on green consumers in Europe. And you may have to because that's what the law says you have to do. In the United States, it's still very much a nice to have. Um, but again, you know, you have to be on top of what legislation may be changing. You have to be on top of how your consumer may be changing and evolving because that's another thing, stuff that we noticed in a lot of the segmentation is that when we actually looked at specific companies and how how their segmentation um, shook out, you may see wild differences between, say, you know, a company like Nike versus Walmart. Right. Some of the counterintuitive findings were particularly interesting in Europe. Like, I think, for example, like, I I think it was one of the Nordic countries, like, the number of non-greens or, like, the the less greens was surprisingly higher than I would have guessed coming out of one of the Nordic countries. Definitely. There are a couple of very sort of counterintuitive facts that we've uh, uncovered, uh, especially around uh, the correlation between age and uh, environmental sustainability. There is usually this assumption that, uh, to put it simply, the younger you are, the more you care about the environment and that Gen Z is really the most, let's say, the greenest generation. And in fact, when you look at Europe, this correlation is way less true than it is in the U.S. And counterintuitively, Gen Z are the least likely to recycle. They are the least likely to a number of actions that you would assume they would lead the pack on. Um, and so that, that's why it really matters to, to dig into the details and, and not you know rely on intuition, but go into the details of what what what. what what people are really doing. And also, I, I think what is even more important is to measure attitudes against behaviors. Because when you ask people, you know, are you willing to pay a premium for, uh, you know, greener products? The majority will say yes. At the end of the day, what I've seen, the very interesting stuff from some of the retailers over here in Europe is that they start to correlate this with POS data. Like, are people really buying the stuff they declare they want to buy? And, and that's where you can go into very interesting, um, you know, action plans to activate the right segments and engage with them in, in the most relevant way. Is there anything counterintuitive in the, the sort of trust levels, um, the trust data that's a sort of associated with each of the segmentations? I think the most counterintuitive uh, element was that convenient greens are way more likely to trust brands, um, which, uh, I mean, overall, if you look at the average and in aggregate, 
it, the level of distrust is quite high. So consumers in general expect brands to act on climate change and environmental issues, but the majority of them, it varies by country, but roughly between 45 and 55 plus percent distrust brands on this. And they consider that when brands communicate on this, they mislead them. Um, Having said that, it is not true for convenient greens. So the way you engage them has to be very different from the way you would engage active greens, for example. I guess I wonder with the convenient greens, like it, it, I think you said they're more likely to be parents, more likely to have young children. So part of their decision making is they just don't have time. True. Right? Yes. So it's like they want to be green, but they don't always have time. And, you know, they might be price constrained because they do have a lot of expenses like related to raising a family. So it's like, one, I don't want to have to take the time to do research into validating claims. And I'm already stressed out enough as it is without having to feel guilty that maybe I, I got greenwashed. <laughs> so I just want to believe. It's better to just believe that they are doing good for the environment. They got enough on their plate. Right, right. But hopefully we don't, you know, kind of violate, brands don't violate yeah. um, that trust to the point that those people become dormant or non-green over time. They should be moving to being more green, not less green. Um, so, the, you know, that is the risk here is that, um, you know, kind of as, as Tomah pointed out, the, the vast majority of consumers are skeptical of these claims to start with. But, you know, kind of of those that believe the claims, you really, really don't want to violate that trust because that, you know, that pollutes the, the landscape, um, you know, really for everybody. Yeah. There's an assumption that we've been building into this conversation so far, which is that the green products are always a premium. I think, you know, Tamai, you had done some research that said that that doesn't necessarily always have to be the case. So potentially as there's more innovation, um, you know, there's alternatives and packaging and material. And even just as we start to electrify everything, does that start to change? And then, you know, for, for organizations that are bringing solutions to market, you know, if you can at least get the price parity, does that suddenly like open up a world of like the convenient greens and the dormant greens? Absolutely. Yes, that's a very valid point. And I think the firms that are more advanced in their sustainability journey are the one who are rethinking their value chain, their ecosystems to exactly make this, making sure that you can deliver more environmental value into the solutions, the products, think in terms of opportunities, launch new offering, new solutions. They're more creative, uh, and and that's and that enables them to either offer the same kind of environmental value for the same price, or to completely rethink the way they approach the market, uh, which which is why it comes with a strong competitive advantage, and it becomes a competitive advantage because they don't just look at the minority of consumers who are willing to pay a premium, but because they take a completely different angle and and come with more innovative solutions. But what I would also say is that um, I don't know that we're going to fully innovate our way to, you know, kind of green products. Um, there, there may, there will absolutely be pockets of innovation that will help with, um, you know, making packaging recycling, or that will help reduce the carbon footprint of um, transportation with electric vehicles, or um, you know, kind of new means of, of transportation or distribution, but. At the end of the day, um, the bar and the floor um, related to production and the afterlife of products 
needs to be raised. Um, there, there needs to be a consideration of negative externalities. And um, Europe absolutely is is closest to that. And there are other pockets of the world that are unlikely that that you wouldn't think about, I should say, that um, that are absolutely raising the bar. Like South Africa, I believe, was one of the first um, countries in the world to have um, extended producer responsibility laws, which essentially um, forces manufacturers to think about the disposal, liquidation, or um, you know, essentially the discarding of their goods and into the and baking that into the production process. So once the bar is raised, then you don't have price as much being the the lever to make things diff, differ as much. Um, but we'll see how that happens. I mean, you know, there's a lot of resistance in in markets like the U.S. to forcing those kinds of changes um, because it's viewed as anti-capitalist or anti-business or, you know, kind of worse anti-consumer. I would be curious from the from the both of you, like we've we've mentioned, you know, particularly Europe being having far more consumers in the convenient and active green. Do we have any early examples of companies that have done a good job of really examining these kinds of consumer segmentations and starting to adapt their products and offerings in a smart way? Yes, I've got a, a, a bunch of examples. Um, a good example to start with would be uh, L'Oreal uh, in the cosmetic industry, in the beauty, in the beauty industry. Um, they've started to look quite deeply into how consumers uh, perceive, obviously, their actions. They're using, uh, they're, they're matching some uh, unstructured data from social listening platforms about the attributes of their, the green attributes of their product and matching this with the, their existing segments to, at the end of the day, communicate on the attributes that have the most value to consumers. Uh, they've started to put together, and that's across, there are many brands, uh, a product that they made, they, they've referred to as SPOT, a Sustainability Product Optimization Tool, where they're evaluating not just for the product, but for the ingredients, for the packaging, for the resources into the product, the environmental impact. So not just the carbon impact, but the, the impact on the resources, on water, etc. And they're starting to making it available to for brands where consumers uh, really care about the environment, enabling you know directly from the product to access the th this kind of environmental information. Um, so that's part of the, I think, how they're evolving the value proposition of their uh, offerings. So L'Oreal and especially their Garnier brand, it's a shampoo brand, uh, are quite active on that front. Yeah, and there are companies like IKEA um, a few years ago made a commitment to trying to make as much of its product um, circular in nature as possible. Um, and, you know, they lead on price. So so absolutely, that is a, a business that is trying to um, balance all of the challenges of doing what we need to do while still holding true to their brand ethos. Um, but I think the observation that is an important one coming from, from Tomas, some of the 
the best case studies here actually are now in the consumer packaged goods world, in large part because those brands have these vast portfolios that are global in nature, um, that they can hyper-segment. And um, they're also acquisitive companies that are taking advantage of a lot of these um, digitally native companies that you know, sort of have emerged and have, um, you know, been able to build brands online. And um, that gives them also some, some petri dishes of experimentation. Um, and, and some of the most successful um, experiments there, they've brought into stores, they've extended into other businesses. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think that we'll we'll absolutely see more of this, but you know, a lot of what we are actually seeing from an experimentation standpoint and a success standpoint are a lot of these um, CPG brands that you know kind of may have started as like small online upstarts that have have you know essentially been nurtured by larger conglomerates to and and have actually ended up cannibalizing probably some of the the you know, kind of more well-known brands, even within their own portfolios. Yeah. There are also interestingly examples in, so anything that is related to, I would say at the end of the day, your buddy. So to your point, anything you're in jest food, when you look at the large conglomerates, you know, the likes of Danone and Unilever and Procter and so on, uh, the, the, the beauty brands that I mentioned is something you, you put on your body at the end of the day. And the fashion brand are apparels that you wear all the time. So it's a good sign that it's starting to enter into, you know, really people's consciousness, their daily lives. It's no longer something that is external, that is, you know, outside of their daily lives. Having said that, uh, I see more and more brands like uh, banks or telecom operators who are really going deep into activating sustainability into their customer journeys. So it's not just, uh, you know, the fact that they've evolved their purpose and want to contribute, obviously, to the environment and to society. It's they're, they're really rethinking the customer journeys to activate sustainability at the most relevant moment. And so we're starting to see for example, sustainability people injected into customer experience teams, which their role is to precisely activate sustainability at the most relevant moment in the customer journey, which is something that 18 months ago did not exist. If we had to make some predictions, you know, a year from now or eight months from now, how do we see these segments growing? It's more of a bell curve distribution, I would say now, where that convenient and dormant section is the biggest, and then you have, you know, kind of the the fringes on the side. And then what I what I see is that curve just moving, you know, kind of more to the right, um, more toward the active greens. So I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't happen otherwise. It's like any social change, whether, you know, I mean, and, and I won't name them all, but, you know, just in like the last several decades, you see attitudes changing because um, especially young people, um, you know, kind of, even though it's, it's interesting to mom, I was like, they're not actually recycling, but they want to recycle. And, you know, kind of a lot of them just are, are just not educated properly about how to recycle or, you know, communities don't make it easy for them to recycle, but, but their hearts are in the right place. And I, I, I think that certainly as, um, you know, and as we mentioned the the biggest non-green segment are the oldest ones. So, you, you know, kind of as the more progressive consumers become 
you know, who are the people answering the surveys, you know, we'll see that distribution shift to, to toward more um, the right side, the active green. Does the, the financial uncertainty of this year and the concerns about inflation, do you think, create a speed bump in that shift? It's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, there are two ways to look at it. On one hand, you could say, well, because of inflation, people will not afford and will care less. At the same time, when you look at uh, you know, the cost of energy, they will pay a lot more attention about, you know, uh, uh, their usage, they will try to limit uh, their impact. Uh, and so to echo what Sharita mentioned, I think we're going to see this move. The question is, at which pace it will like, accelerate, and I think it will spread across uh, generations. Uh, when I look at the, the the distribution curve uh, and the correlation between age and uh, uh, the, the level of, uh, let's say, the, the convenient greens and the active greens, so the most uh, the, the the greenest segments in our in our segmentation, this correlation is is less and less significant uh, in more major regions like Europe, which means, you know. Uh, le- the, the boomers, the Thailand generation, uh, th- they also have embraced these behaviors. Uh, and I think we'll see that uh, in other countries like in Australia, uh, very likely so in the United States as well. Uh, I think that's a shift to be expected because uh, there are less and less, uh, let's say, climate skeptics, right? Well, I think we should repeat this podcast in a year and see if our predictions come true. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Steph and Jen. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.